You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Warning, this content... Nope, fucked it. Warning, this podcast may contain bad language and content that some listeners find offensive or some listeners may find accessible and balanced. We're back. Guest number two. Welcome to the Seesaw Podcast with Tea and Cleaves. Each week, offering up a great perspective on life. Welcome to an episode of Seesaw, episode two of guests. Um, we're just going to jump straight into this one, I think, aren't we, Cleaves? Yeah, yeah. No, no fucking around today. So today we have Martin Austin, um, the managing director of the Nimbus, uh, company Nimbus, who do the access card. Um, just coming back and having a chat with him based off of our last access card. We took a lot of flack, so we thought we'd best to get him on and give you a balanced argument. We are back with another guest. Uh, Today we have Martin Austin, the Managing Director of Nimbus and the Access Card, and he's been very gracious in coming on to discuss the Access Card. Uh, So welcome, Martin, for coming on. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you. So um, would you like to sort of outline sort of your role and, and a little bit about you, Martin, before we sort of get started with things? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So um, i founder of Nimbus Disability. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into the background a little bit as we go along. Uh, but my my main role is, uh, is, is managing director. So it's overseeing all operation and development within the um, within the company. Uh, we, we set up Nimbus initially, it was around 2016, so the company's been going quite a long time, whereas the access card, in the scheme of things, we didn't start the access card until about 2013, so that's been a bit more of a recent uh, service that we offer. But yeah, so I lead on a lot of the business-to-business side of things, so uh, we do a lot of equality training with businesses, access auditing, policies, procedures, anything a business needs, that's where Nimbus comes in and we help them with the idea that if we help them to get better, we actually improve accessibility and understanding for disabled people as well. So that was the kind of the central tenant of setting Nimbus up as a social enterprise. In the long run, we want to have a positive impact on disabled people and we charge businesses to do that. Fantastic. So the access card itself, of course, we, we touched on the previous act, like episode of ours and like through a little bit of correspondence of course that's why we got you on to like clear up some some ideas that we had some asked some questions so well what was the yeah. origins of the access card itself basically i i started work at a, a small user-led charity in derby called disability direct and my role was a welfare rights advisor so i used to help people claim and uh, claim disability living allowance and so on but my main role was actually in representing them at tribunal to overturn decisions made by the DWP. So fast forward uh, 10 years and Nimbus is trucking along and we picked up a client called Live Nation, 
who are the UK's biggest uh, live music promoters. Uh, And we started work initially on uh, a festival that's local to you and local to us. It's sort of halfway in between. We started work on the Download Festival. So we managed to really work with them to turn a greenfield site into something that was accessible and enjoyable for disabled people. So changing places, toilets, inaccessible camping, viewing platforms, concessionary ticket rates, uh, just a whole a whole raft of things that made festival going possible for disabled people. So it's something we were really proud of, they were really proud of. And we got asked a question that kind of just, just changed our, our thinking about everything. So the, the question from the business was, can we ask for photo ID when disabled people are booking tickets? Because we don't ask for photo ID from other customers. Now, at that stage, they, like every other venue in the UK, was offering a free plus one ticket and access to access requirements. But you had to complete a registration form and send in evidence to do that, which is perfectly reasonable if you've got a limited, finite resource of such as uh, access to viewing platforms or if you're giving away free tickets that are open to abuse. But they weren't sure that uh, Ethel Cartwright on the DOA letter was the 16-year-old girl that appeared in front of them on the day. So they yeah. wanted a, a way of being a bit more a bit more stringent about that. And we said, well, actually, it is a little air of burden for disabled people because that's on top of already having to send in your evidence, having to fill in a form. And I've got to do that, me as a disabled person, I've got to do that when I go to the football, when I go to the cinema, when I go to the theatre. It's a pain in the arse. And that's when I thought, well, if we're going to ask for that bit more and make it more complicated, can we roll that into a system that actually makes things easier for disabled people? And that was where the access card came in. So we said to them, well, why don't you subcontract the entire thing to us and we do all the decision making for you? Uh, and we'll produce a card that is the, an ID card that just communicates to you what, what uh, access requirements somebody has. Uh, so I went, no, we don't feel like paying for that. But it kept ticking in my head. I'm like, I'd buy this if this yeah. was a thing. And we're a social enterprise. And I thought, well, let, let's put it out there. Let's reinvest some of the money that we've made from Nimbus as a social enterprise. Let's put some development costs into it. Let's buy a printer. Let's build a website and put it out there and see if anybody wants to buy it, uh, if anybody sees the value in it. And here we are seven, eight years later with 35,000 cardholders scattered across the world. It was a way of simplifying my experience as a disabled customer across lots of different venues. Fantastic. So like, quite a journey. It's been a long time sort of in the making, hasn't it? Yeah, and it was one of the things that I, I kind of confused about your original podcast. Um, the, the things you were talking about, our massive marketing budget and and we're pushing this at disabled people because we don't actually have any marketing budget. We don't actually do any promotion uh, or advertising. I mean, we have a social media officer who regularly updates customers about all the new places that they can use their card. But every penny that we make, we reinvest. If there's surplus after that reinvestment, every penny of profit that's left goes back to charity. So it goes back to the sister charity that I started working in 20 years ago. Am I right in thinking, though, that Nimbus itself isn't a registered charity? That's a company and then it then feeds charities. Yeah, exactly right. So our legal structure is a limited company, but we're a social enterprise. So there are clauses within our registration around our profit distribution and our asset lock. 
So we're legally obliged by our constitution to donate every penny that's left at the end of the year to charity. And the reason behind that comes back to the, the generation, uh, the genesis of Nimbus. So Disability Direct was a charity for disabled people. We kept getting asked by businesses to advise them. And we weren't set up for that as a charity. So we explicitly set up Nimbus with the view of making money and making profit and reinvesting that. It just happens that the access card falls under the same legal structure. Uh, and and we, we can make a bit of a profit out of it, uh, which I don't see as a bad thing because people will be have the confidence that it's being re- reinvested back into charity. Yeah, and, and that's fantastic. I think that's one thing that we were a bit puzzled with. Because there, there are sort of like CA cards and things like that. There are other things around and, and venues will have their own schemes like you've mentioned too, which, yeah. uh, of course, as soon as we sort of like were looking up, I think I was looking through your website where I got a lot of like, my information from. Um, and Eric, I'm, I'm not sure where you you heard originally about the card itself. No, but... it'll be on venue website. So I think I was booking tickets for most mm. point Arena in Nottingham. So but that's the way we we consciously, if it's if you're in a venue that's using it, it will always sit next to. You can send us in your whatever evidence you want to, or if you've got an access card, tell us your number, and we'll be able to pull up nothing but your access requirements when you make that booking. So that's the, the very essence of it. That's how we insist that venues market it. It's never a prerequisite. If anybody ever makes it a prerequisite, they have to pay for it. So you'll get a free access card or uh, they're, they're not doing it right. And again, my biggest confusion of all from your original podcast was, was how into the CEA card you guys are uh, <laughs> when you pay £10 a year for a card that you don't need at all. Uh, and uh, you know we have real problems with with the CEA in, in sort of acknowledging that you don't have to have a CEA card to get your reasonable adjustments. It wasn't so much the reasonable adjustments. I think it was the um, the free carer ticket that you get with a CEA card. A lot of cinemas will not give you that free carer without the CEA card. Whereas yeah, the and, access and card, we were deciding like basically, what do you get for your fifteen pounds? Well, I think a lot of disabled people don't realise is that that free companion ticket, if it's, if it's addressed properly, is a reasonable adjustment. It's not a discount. You're not paying for a buy one, get one free. Yeah. You're being a, given a free ticket in lieu of that person coming to provide you with support that you would otherwise not be able to have to visit that venue. So it's not a discount. And that's the thing with the CEA. If you need support from somebody, and their website's incredibly clear about this, they are obliged to provide you that support without a CEA card. So the CEA are actually doing exactly what you were accusing of, of making it institutionalised that you have to pay for a reasonable adjustment. I mean, we weren't saying that was a good thing. We were just saying that that is what it seems to be the case with cinemas. It is absolutely the case with cinemas, and it's definitely not a good thing. Leave none from that, Martin. Um, one of the things we were also mentioning on our last podcast is and as you, you mentioned, a lot of venues already offer reasonable adjustments, um, a, a carer's ticket on request. So our thoughts were, okay, th- these systems are already in place. Um, and that's, what I think, where some of our confusion came from with the CEA card, uh, not CEA card, sorry, the access card. Um, yeah. Just more over that, like, what this is adding to what is already an established sort of system. 
am I right in believing that you would still have to pre sort of like have a discussion or contact a venue beforehand, even with an access card, to have these reasonable adjustments? Or can you just walk up on the day with your card and that be that they're obligated to assist you in the ways that you required? So it, it depends on the venue, and I think the biggest the biggest addition that we've added is the the digital uh, way of accessing the information on the card. So you, you talk a lot about turning up as a venue, but in terms of ticketing, it's very rare that people will actually buy tickets at the venue. So it's typically a case of you've got to call a special helpline or email a special uh, access at and then fill in a registration form and then send in your documents. And all of that's got quite a lengthy manual uh, element to it. Whereas with us, you can just call the venue or link your access card with the online ticketing facilities that they've got and automatically your access needs are verified straight away, no faffing around, and they can go straight into customer service road. I can say, hi, Tony, yeah, you can see on the system uh, you've got a visual impairment and you need an assistance dog. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you on uh, row F and if you want to turn up a little bit early, come through side gate B rather than uh, having to go through all that rigmarole. You can go through that rigmarole and you're perfectly perfectly welcome to. And like I say, they're obliged to offer that element uh, at, at no cost to you. Some people may look at the access card and, you know, for 15 quid for three years, having this in my pocket is actually quite handy. But then you've got the element of just turning up to uh, a business uh, and having your needs met. So, uh, one venue, well, a couple of venues that have been really responsive recently have been, uh, have been IKEA and, and Primark with people with difficulty with standing and queuing. So people are showing the cards at those venues saying, look, I, I really can't stand in this queue. And, uh, it's being responded to. We don't have any relationship with them, but it's a card, not the back of the card. It says that we independently verified this person as having legal rights as a disabled person, which has symbolized by the symbols on this card, and you have a legal responsibility to respond to them. In effect, we're we're doing a very, very micro disability quality training session of saying this is a barrier and this is your adjustment and you need to make it right here, right now, no question, because not doing will place this customer at significant disadvantage. From my experience of going to a fair amount of gigs, they, they will ask you for both. Like They'll say, if you have an access card, great, we'll take it into account, but you still have to fill out this form. So how sort of widespread would you say the access card is now in terms of venues just saying, yeah, if you have an access card, that's fine. You don't have to bother to fill in the rest of the, the forms. Uh, I don't know of many venues that will actually ask you to fill in a form as well uh, if it's built into the into the ticketing. I mean, one of the other things that we do is we uh, we run access uh, facilities on on some festivals and some situations. So we've just come off of a, a festival site this weekend where we, even though we're running it ourselves, if we get an access card, we still want to know more information about the specifics of accessibility. So we want to know, you know, are you bringing a tent? How many people are in your tent? You want a caravan space? You know, those kind of things that are specific to that venue. But that's not about how disabled are you? You know, that's not about we need to see this rate of, of disability benefit. So if somebody has a, a separate registration form, that's entirely about customer service and making your stay more accessible and more enjoyable. With regards to the actual card, how effective are the symbols on the card, firstly? And secondly, at venues, 
how trained will this staff be to to recognize a card well i'll answer the second one first and and that's the that's the trickiest part of all the venues that we work with closely uh will will obviously invest a lot in training the venues that have never heard of us won't have any training so we're reliant on them just recognizing and understanding that the symbols in front of them um so it, it is hit and miss and when we, we're really clear with customers that we can't guarantee that the card will be will be recognized whereas if you were if you go to somewhere like uh we were with glasgow rangers they've printed up cheat sheets that go in every customer service element of the entire ibrox stadium so if this customer has this, do this, do this, do this. Sorry. It's not relying on the actual staff members, though, aren't you, to an extent? I appreciate you probably can't police all of that, but is there a, is there sort of things in place? Do you check the venues or things like that, that are like advertised on the website as being accessible? So I don't know whether you got to that point on the, on the website, but the main element of what we're trying to do is actually collate access statements with all of these revenues. So when a venue signs up with us, they'll have their own uh, access listing on our on our website, which turns each of the symbols on the card into their policy on that symbol. So I've got the standing and queuing symbol on my card. So I want to go to a listing and see how they're going to respond to my issue with standing and queuing. So if you go to the motor point, it'll say, if you have problems with standing and queuing, we offer X, Y, and Z because they've done a mini access audit of their facilities there. So there's that element of it. Uh, and again, for those venues that we don't work with, yeah, we are, we are reliant on a bit, of, uh, a bit of goodwill and common sense. There's, there's no denying that. But if you've got a disabled person in front of you explaining what they need uh, and showing a card with symbols on it and that uh, disclaimer on the back, then, you know, worst case, they, they don't meet your needs. But you've got a case to bring against them. And, it, you know, it's sad, but being disabled in 2021. I guess my point is that if, if you can't necessarily be reliant on the staff, is the access card any extra benefit? Yes, because it actually gives you credibility about the conversation that you're having with that person there and then. I mean, we can't change society as a whole. We can't, we can't suddenly say that uh, everybody's going to respond perfectly and have all access facilities in place. Uh, but again, it's down to the, the, the choice of the individual if they if they can see the benefits of having a card. I mean, if the staff don't know what the card is, does does it lend credibility? I'm just showing them a piece of card. They have no idea what it is. Yeah, but that's where our named and famed criteria come in. So where people have had success with uh, with a venue, they tell us and then that gets shared amongst a, a Facebook group, a close Facebook group of cardholders that we have increases customer disabled people and uh, raises awareness that way. I mean, how can you guarantee that anybody anywhere will recognize a CEA card? Uh, the CEA is industry specific and it's got to the point where it's drilled into staff so much that they won't let you have services without it. It's the other side of it. So it's how we manage those integrations with the, uh, the, the companies that we work closely with and they're the ones that get the return on investment. You, you mentioned like the sort of named and famed venues. Do they get Policed in any way? Are they are they like audited or reviewed by Access Card? No. So the oh, named and famous venues are literally, uh, we're very clear. They are they have been named and famed by a customer that's had a good experience. There's no guarantee that the next time another customer goes there, they'll have the same experience. I suppose similarly on, on that side of things, Martin. If you do get a complaint, I suppose of uh, let's say a venue is sort of has. Their associations with with the scheme 
and something does occur, what, what sort of policing goes in? Is it that their accreditation can be stripped away from them? Do they receive extra training? Accreditation is a completely different thing. So we're we talking about accreditation or the named and claimed element of it. If we take accreditation for, for now, then I suppose. Okay, so accreditation is something completely different. Uh, so this is where the credibility uh, quite kite mark comes in. So we've got a credible provider mark, a credible access mark, and a credible employer mark. So the credible provider mark uh, is something that we give when we've audited uh, providers' policies and procedures to make sure that they are they meet certain standards that we'd we'd expect that you know they're legally entitled to offer what they're entitling. Access information is clear and, and relevant, you know, those kind of things so that we can say, look, we'd recommend this this provider, you know, as individuals, as a company, this is a business that we trust to give you a good service. The credible access mark is entirely about physical accessibility of, of the building that they provide the services from. So basically, the credible access mark we can give if we can that every building is audited and we will uh give the quality mark to basically audit and give a clean bill of health if we can say that we're happy that it does meet uh certain accessibility standards based on uh the quality act building regulations british standards uh and we can sign it off and, and be confident in saying We'd recommend if you're a wheelchair user, you can go here. If you're, a, if, if you're a disabled person, you can go here. The toilets are appropriate, ramps and signage are appropriate. So really what we're looking for is splitting the service provision and the accessibility into two different things. What is that process though? Is it, um, do you have sort of staff that are trained in that sort of thing or is it like a, like a company sort of policy where, you know, you have to tick certain boxes and if they hit those criteria, then they'll pass? We don't do many of them. Uh, we don't get requested many of them, and I do every single one of them personally. And I'm a, a trained access auditor. Is there sort of any like reviewing or, or premises after they've been accredited? So let's say after like two years or so, just to make sure they are still on the level. No, not at present. <clears throat> and the reason for that is they retain their quality mark indefinitely as long as they make a commitment to respond and feedback to uh, any feedback from disabled customers. Uh, and we put ourselves in the position where we can collate that feedback on their behalf. So if we have any issues that are raised by customers, that's when they'll get a corrective action. Uh, their reward will be, uh, will be temporarily put on hold, uh, award will be temporarily put on hold while we go out and then we re-review. With regards to the accreditation, do you charge the business for that? I'm just wondering why there wouldn't be more uptake on it. Yes, yeah, we charge the business for that. I'm, I'm sure we'd be inundated if we did it for free. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that the, the, point, the point is everything that adds value to the business, we charge for. Everything that adds value to the disabled customer, we don't charge for. So if you take... Uh, the validation system that we've got. So we've got a box office system where uh, if I call the box office, the person in the box office can type in my name and card number and pull up a digital version of my card. We'll give that to any venue for free, subject to a usage license. Uh, so there's no cost involved for that at all because that benefits the disabled customer. If, however, that venue wants to subcontract their entire access registration scheme for us to run, that's a benefit to them. So we'll charge them for that. That, that, that does make sense. Do venues care? 
Did, are they bothered about making things more accessible for people on the whole? I mean, I know they have a sort yeah. of legal obligation to do so, but from a sort of social responsibility. Ten, 11 yeah. years ago, the Equality Act came into place and my thoughts of that would be like the fact that schemes are needed to try and stick up for disabled people when technically the law is supposed to be there to do that. No, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and the, the, the honest answer is that that's a mixed answer. Uh, we work with some amazing companies that do amazing work uh, and we're involved in several networks. So we work really closely with an organisation called Attitudes Everything. And Attitudes Everything hosts a couple of networks around uh, uh, ticketing with barriers, without barriers coalition, accessible reopening coalition. And around those tables, we, we have big companies that are genuinely, genuinely invested in improving services for disabled people. You know, big companies like, uh, like Ticketmaster, you know, they'll sit around that table because they're invested in, in genuine change and genuinely improving things. Why the private sector can be trickier? Retail, uh, we, we don't have a, a, a huge amount of uh, involvement with, which is a which is a shame. But I think retail's then the next one. So you know, yes, some do. Some will never give a shit. You know, you just there's just yeah. no no denying it. They just don't see the value in it. So one one of the concerns I had is about data protection. Of course, like mm-hmm. what you're requesting from. A lot of people, I would debatably say medical history is probably one of the most intimate things that a person has. I suppose my concern was how is this being stored and audited because unfortunately leaks happen. When I I looked through the data um, and your privacy information on the website, it it seemed very um, corporate and not, not very sort of like there wasn't much specific about how it's stored, where it's stored, what sort of encryption you have in place. So I was just thinking afterwards, like, is this just locked in an office on a hard drive? Because that, that would be a concern. Yeah, no, it all uh, sits on a USB pen drive that I keep in my pocket. Absolutely <laughs> fine. <laughs> uh, no, so um, uh, the uh, data governance, the data protection side of things, we actually came up with that policy with help from uh, Ticketmaster's own data governance team. So that's why the policy might sound a bit a bit corporate. For the first ten cards, it was an it was an access database that sat on the uh, the company's server uh, on a, on a big one of I'm not saying techie. It was one of those big servers that sits in the air conditioned room. Yeah. But one of the, one of the first things that we did uh, was was really log this down. Uh, so we moved the whole system into uh, an AWS uh, server and it's protected through an SSH protocol. Yeah. So it's pretty much the, the, the standard for high volume, uh, high security private network storage. Uh, I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my day job. My day job is disability and disabled people. Uh, but because we're working through a- API linking between uh, between our databases and and ticket factories and such and such and such and such, you know, it had to be secure. So we're we're quite happy with the way that that's protected. And this data, like when, when you're sharing this with venues, like they're only getting the symbols, aren't they? I think you said it's like they're not getting the in-depth data that you would normally send them if you're say registering with them. Yeah, I think the important thing to note here as well is. When we say we send them, at no point can any data be shared. The the API will only trigger if you as a user share 
three pieces of information with the venue that's accessing it. So it has to be card number, name, forename and surname. Uh, they can't browse a database to see what symbol somebody's got. So that is your act of consent for them to see. They basically see a digital version of the card. So exactly what you see on the card, they see the photo, they see your name, your number, your expiry date and the symbols on your card. I think the other thing with data protection as well, when you talk about how do we store medical information and asking for medical information, when we're processing an application, we only want to see enough information to, to verify the access requirements that you've stated. So if you can send us in a PIP letter that, that whose rates correlate with what you're describing, we don't need to see anything beyond that. If you send us a GP's letter that says exactly what we need to say about your access requirements and nothing about your medical history, besides the fact that you meet the, uh, the definition of disabled in the Equality Act, that's all we need. So we don't need a lot of medical information. We don't want a lot of medical information. We want just enough to be able to say, yes, A, this person is a disabled person as defined under the Equality Act, and B, these symbols relate directly to the barriers that they face and the adjustments that they need. My final question, basically, is, is this, do, you, do you find that, I mean, obviously you must have found it necessary in order to have begun the scheme in the first place, but the reason I ask is, I don't necessarily think I should have to have a card to prove what my disability is, nor should I have a card to prove, I don't know, my gender or an ethnicity or anything else like that. I should be able to walk up to a venue and them already have sort of systems in place to be able to deal with that. Now, whether they do or they don't, is debatable and maybe that's why the card was sort of came about in the first place so is is this would you say that everyone should have one do you think that's a, a good thing no and i think that was one of the fundamental misconceptions of your original podcast we're really really clear that you don't have to have one uh, never never at any point should anybody be required to carry an access card with them that, that's not uh, that, that's not equality that's that's not independence if you want one fine if you see the benefit in it but like i say like you said it will always sit next to or you can do x y and z do i think we need a scheme like this yeah i i think one universal scheme that actually tackles all of the issues around finding out about accessibility and communicating access requirements is definitely beneficial and it was one of the things at the beginning Somebody said we should put that behind the paywall. You should only be able to see that if you're an access card holder. We said, no, this is this is community information. This is it's information that we're taking a lot of time, effort, and spending money to collate. But we're not going to lock that behind the paywall. This is it is information that everybody can benefit from. Uh, you don't have to have a card to be able to benefit from that. So we're doing a lot. I think that we're doing a lot of people that don't have access cards as well. You know, we're, we're, we're tightening up procedures where there are none. So, you know, we're always contributing in what way we can. If you want to give us £15 to help with that journey and get a card, fantastic. You can be part of the journey. But if not, fine. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't bother me. Every venue we work with will have a free option. The million-pound question would, would be, okay, so as, as Eric sort of suggested, like, these schemes are are required to sort of like make companies accountable. My bugbear with with all of these sort of things sometimes is that there's this always seems to be a, a double standard when it comes to disabled people, um, especially with such like recent 
big changes for other underrepresented groups. And I, we, we were discussing that Disability Pride Month, no one really acknowledged it uh, where no. I work didn't. And it was it just seems disabled people fall by the wayside and that it's only until schemes like this come along that we have to prove that it's a benefit to not to not isolate and alienate people. And yeah, I remember in your original podcast, I mean, you were making the, the, the really clear argument. People don't have to have a have to prove the gender or their ethnicity to X, Y, and Z. But there's there's this line in the in the Equality Act that, that fundamentally changes everything around disability, and that's where we can treat disabled people differently if the, if the, if it's a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. I mean, if somebody's asking you if you're disabled to get into ASDA and prove you're disabled to get into ASDA without any any reason, then that's illegal. But if you've got something like ticketing, which is which is obviously our main line of work, if having non-disabled people have the opportunity to book those finite resources, such as extra leg room, such as free companion tickets, you know, we're asking for evidence. We, the, the, the big we of the industry, are asking for that evidence in order to protect those resources for disabled people that need them. And sometimes it's disabled the people that want them and don't need them that we're protecting them from as well. Disabled people are uh, a, a different uh, protected characteristic for, from other groups. Now, I feel like we we get the worst of all of the groups and none mm. of the attention. Yeah, you know, we're probably as probably one of the biggest if you uh, if you actually take into account all the factors and we're the ones that need the most specific support out of out of everything I mean, we're not just facing we're not just facing general prejudice we're facing structural systemic societal discrimination yeah. and you know that's what we're aware of and that's what we're trying to to tackle with this scheme is is remove those those structures you know, when I first went to my went to my first festival, there wasn't any access. You didn't book accessible tickets. You just just rocked up and hoped that you were you were the one that was hard enough and brave enough to uh, to make it through the day. <laughs> yeah, things are things are changing. But and that's the, the other side of where we really come in and the work we're doing, access card or no, is we're in a it's a digital age. We're 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 digitizing people's access requirements. So forget about the the proof side of things. We're you know, again, another example from you, from the original podcast kept saying it's obvious you're, you guys are disabled. You, you look disabled. It's perfectly clear you're disabled. And I'm exactly the same. I've got no qualms, uh, no, no problems with walking up somewhere going, I can't stand here because I've got one leg. You know, that's perfectly obvious. Yeah. But we've all got hidden impairments when we're online. You know, yeah. every, at the end of the phone, we've got a hidden impairment on, uh, on ticketing platforms. We've got a hidden impairment. So any time that we can integrate into digital platforms, that for me is the is the next the next generation of installing ramps where there were steps. Is we need to be able to have a system that digitizes what people's access requirements are. If you had to sort of sum it up, then I mean, like probably that's our biggest point is we couldn't justify why we would need one. If you know, if you had to sum up sort of the benefits for someone having one. Could you just do that for us? Yeah, that's a sales pitch. Like, <laughs> anyone listening, because I... Because like, you made some great points. So. Yeah. Like, like you said, like, yeah, it's, I mean, not everyone needs guys it. Made my, I mean, we're not here to, to sell it. I mean, I find mine useful because I go to lots of different places 
buy lots of tickets for different things in different situations. I find myself in different cities and different countries. The main thing is, is around uh, around skipping queues, the tourist attractions, those kind of things. It, it's just about peace of mind and uh, and simplifying that conversation. Like I say, we, we've gone from not having any access to, in the later days, what's your disability? You know, it's not about what my disability is. It's what reasonable adjustments I need. We're just looking to change the conversation. So if you've got an access card, it very simply just changes the conversation when you're talking to people. I need, I want, rather than this is what's wrong with me. Fantastic. Well, I think that's clear up a lot of the initial sort of questions and and concerns we had. Um, but yeah, you've been very concise, Martin, and thank you for coming on and chatting to us because it's been really good. Thank you. It has been really good, and ultimately, that's that's what we want. We want like the truth out there. And to be fair, what information we had was just through like, what we've read on on the website, and maybe maybe some deeper sleuthing. We we could have found out a lot more, uh, but we were going from a would this be the average experience? If I said to a friend, "Oh, have a look at the access card," they'd skim the website and go, "Oh, these are questions I have," because that's just how people are. I've always found. Yeah. Like they yeah, just no, glimpse I, I get it completely, and I've got, I've got no no problem with it at all. And it's nice to be able to come on and flash it out. And just to reassure you, we don't sell any data to Big Pharma either. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Austin, thank you for coming on and, and chatting with us. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. Thank you very much. And we're back. So hopefully, you found that really really insightful. It has changed my views a little bit on the access card. Like what I enjoyed is the knock-on effect that that card has. Whether I'm still necessarily sold on the card, for me personally, I don't know. But the fact that the card is having a knock-on effect in terms of venues getting better and just places generally. They, you know, you might not need a card, but at least people are starting to think about accessible needs and what's required for disabled people. Yeah, I agree. And, and like Martin said, it's completely optional. You don't have to have one. It's just something that they're offering for other people. And if people find genuine use out of it, fantastic so yeah the the jury's still out on whether i felt like it would benefit me but i could see how it would benefit a lot of other people and like like martin said as well like what we got to at the end with like the double standards for disabled people it's it's one of those things that we're always going to be fighting against and i suppose if we can level the player playing field in any way i suppose that that helps i mean we shouldn't have to but it's better than not doing anything i suppose for now then Tune in next week for probably more standard bullshit. Yep. Tune in for more nonsense, ill-informed views and a lot of anger. Thanks for listening to the Seesaw Podcast. you find us on Facebook at Seesaw Podcast, Twitter, Seesaw Pod. You can email us at seesawpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on TikTok and Instagram at Seesaw Podcast or Seesaw Pod, depending on which one we want. But get us on the other places. This podcast was recorded in front of a blind audience.